The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down the mountain, he did not know that he had the skin of his face shown because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is the word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for um, the inestimable privilege, Lord, that we have of having Bibles and having time to get into your word, that by your Holy Spirit, your word would get into us. We would ask for um, your Holy Spirit to illumine this text to our understanding, that we may be given grace to see that wherein we fail, Jesus, our true and greater Moses, on our behalf, mightily prevails. For we ask it in his name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head in the Alpha and Omega. Amen. Look, I look around, I can tell where some of y'all have been. Um, You come back looking rested, tan, you've been to Seaside. You've been to Gulf Shore, some of you've been down to Destin, and here I am looking like the Pillsbury Doughboy, pale as I ever been. You know, tell where you've been. Uh, we had a dog several years ago, her name was Pound Cake, and she'd always get into things. Uh, one night we came home, uh, she greeted us at the door looking like this, and we could tell where she had been. That's a trash can lid around her head. And she's looking at us, even there, just the shame. Look at the shame on her face. She's like, you caught me red pawed. What can I say? And here's the thing. You remember the movie Up? Doug the dog would always wear the what? The cone of shame. This takes the cone of shame to a whole new level because this is the trash can lid out of the bathroom trash can. Mm, the cone of shame, man. Years ago when Lydia was just five or six, I got home late one night. And I wanted to sneak into her room, give her a little peck on the cheek. Didn't want to awaken her. And I go in, I give her a little kiss, and I turn around to walk out. She bolts up in bed, stands up, straight up in bed. She says, I know where you've been. You've been smoking cigars. I said, no, baby. I haven't been smoking cigars. I was out ministering to Pastor Todd, and he was smoking a cigar. 
Moses has been in the presence of God many times. In chapter three, he could only shield his eyes from the burning bush, which was not consumed, as he heard the name of God, the covenant name of God. I am that I am. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh, the eternally self-existent God of the covenant. Verse five, do not come near Moses. Take the sandals from off your feet, for the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. And in chapter Three, verse six, Moses has to bail, has to hide his face, has to hide. He didn't want to see God. He was so full of fear and awe. And this begins a long drama in the Old Testament of God showing up and showing himself strong for Moses and the people of Israel. Ten plagues in Egypt. God flexed all over Pharaoh. Uh, we, we see him, you know, uh, leading the, the children of Israel to the Red Sea. He was with them in a, in a pillar of cloud by day and, and fire by night. He is present with his people unmistakably. In chapter 19, God is on the mountain and there is a thick cloud around the mountain and the people of Israel need no convincing. They were told not to touch the mountain lest they die. And it was obvious to them as we see in 19 verses 16 to 25, uh, there were thick clouds and lightnings and thunderings and trumpet blasts coming from the mountain. It caused them to tremble with fear. Verse 19, like the smoke of a kiln, the mountain was covered. And God told Moses to warn the people not to break through and come to the mountain lest he break forth on them. The presence of God is not a trifling thing. It is not open to opinion. It is not an optional thing. From chapters 20 to 31 of Exodus, we see God gives his people his law, uh, a reflection of his own righteous character. He gives them instructions on how he wanted the temple to be constructed and, and adorned and decorated, how they could make sacrifice for sin so that they could draw near to him because he wanted to be present with them in temple intimacy to be their God and they his people. Well, in the next chapter, chapter 32, uh, we see Moses saying to the people at the end of that chapter, you have sinned a great sin. What was that sin? Well, we heard Pastor Scott last week tell us about it as they crafted for themselves a golden calf, despite all of the ways that God had rescued them and redeemed them, protected them and provided for them, covenanted with them and cared for them, despite all of that, despite the fact that Jehovah had gone before them and parted the Red Sea as the, the sea just walled up on either side and they walked through on dry ground only to turn around and marvel as the armies of Egypt were swallowed up and consumed. After all of that, nonetheless, they come to Aaron, God's appointment for Moses as a right-hand man. They come to Aaron and they say, look, Moses has been too long on the top of that mountain with the Lord. Aaron, we need for you to rise up and make gods for us that will go before us, that will protect us. How quickly they forgot, how quickly you and I forget God's faithfulness, that, that even his delays in our lives for our discipleship, they had a failure to remember um, over the last couple of years, my, my scholarly interest du jour has been all things related to Marxism and socialism, communism, the Russian Revolution, the Romanovs, Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, those sorts of things. Fyodor Mikhailovich Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, chapter 5, entitled The Grand Inquisitor. Uh, Ivan uh, Dostoevsky's uh, great skeptical character, Ivan Karamazov, is having a conversation where he he inquires, he, he asks, um, if there is no God and there is no immortality, then aren't all things perm permissible? We can do what we like. 
Well, Russian author and follower of Christ, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who lived from 1918 to 2008, uh, wrote of his experience in Soviet forced labor camps between 1958 and 68, entitled the Gulag Archipelago. And he writes of the tragic, toxic spillage of Marxism and Leninism, communism in Russia. And on May 10th, 1983, he received the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion. And in his acceptance speech entitled, and listen, his acceptance speech is entitled, Godlessness, the First Step to the Gulag. He detailed how the communist takeover was enabled by decades of atheism and secularization, which tore away at the, at the moral fabric and, and, and Christian tradition in Russia. His opening statement is staggering. More than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I've spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. And that's why all this happened. And lest people take a deep breath and say, well, thankfully he's just talking about what happened in Russia, he says this. What is more, the events of the Russian Revolution can only be understood now at the end of the century against the background of what has since occurred in the rest of the world. What emerges here is a process of universal significance, and if I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trait of the entire 20th century, here too, I would be unable to find anything more precise and pithy than to repeat, once again, men have forgotten God. He concludes that speech by saying our only hope in this world is a determined quest for the warm hand of God. Hard drinking, hard living, poet, underground pulp fiction, hero, and master of the literary school known as Dirty Realism, Charles Bukowski, lived from 1920 to 94. He was beaten as a child. He was an atheist his whole life. He toyed with Buddhism toward the end. Uh, He said that basically people kill and participate in killing. People, he said, and I quote, are nailed to pointless processes. People are dumb. People are, and I quote, pointless. He goes on to say, for those who believe in God, Most of the big questions are answered, but for those of us who can't really accept the God formula, the big answers don't remain stone-written. We adjust to new conditions and discoveries. We are pliable. Love need not be a command, nor faith a dictum. I am my own God. We are here to unlearn the teachings of the church, state, and our educational system. We are here to drink beer. We are here to kill war. We are here to laugh at the odds and live our lives so well that death will tremble to take us. Death doesn't always tremble, y'all. Sadly, he passed away in 1994, had some Buddhist monks officiate his funeral. Moses comes down off the mountain, 
two tablets written by the finger of God, two tablets of stone, the law of God in his hands. And he saw the people of God partying, dancing, genuflecting before the golden calf, fashioned with such desperate hope that it would give them purpose, tell them who they were, give them an identity. Surely Moses wanted to shout, do you not remember all of the ways that Yahweh has provided? Do you not remember the, the Red Sea? Can't you remember bread falling from the skies like rain? One of the most oft-repeated commands in the Bible is remember. In the Hebrew and in the Greek, with its variants, the words for remember appear some 550 times. Yet here was that golden calf, gleaming, horns prominently protruding. They had been given a bronze altar back in the temple. They had been given a bronze altar that they could take in the tabernacle. And there were horns on each of the four corners of, of the of the bronze altar. We read of this in Exodus chapter 21, 13 to 14. And these horns they could lay hold of and grab hold of and cry out for mercy. Uh, we read in 1 Kings 1, 50 to 53, that, that it was a place of refuge to lay hold of the horns of the altar. And you could find God's approval, his favor, his grace, his mercy. And there they have a cow statue. That, that's that's what they have now. They have a cow statue. And in chapter 32, verse 5, Aaron says, we are going to worship. He points the golden calf and says, we are going to worship Yahweh. We're going to worship the Lord. They, they had conflated their idol, this cow statue, with Yahweh himself. This will be a way to, to get to God. Moses pleads with God to turn away his wrath from consuming them. Chapter 32, verses 11 to 14. In fact, he speaks of it in verse 14 as disastrous wrath. Wrath, as the old preachers used to say, to the uttermost. We, we're uncomfortable talking about wrath, and, and we should be, right? I had an experience with wrath just a couple of three weeks ago myself. I in fact, I was walking out the hallway the other night, and they just had choir practice. I saw Ruth Carlton, and Ruth said, I saw your sweetie the other day. I saw Diane. How's she doing? I said, oh, she's doing fine. She is a sweetie. She is such a sweetie. And uh, Ruth said, yeah, she's a sweetie. I'd hate to get on the wrong side of her, though. I said, oh, yeah, you would. Believe me, you would. Um, in fact, I'm driving home, and uh, I'm coming through our neighborhood and our subdivision, and I see coiled up in the middle of the street about a five-foot-long Texas rat snake. And it was just coiled, it was sitting right in the middle of the street. And so I get out to inspect it, and I think to myself, why is a snake not trying to get out of the way? What's, has it been grazed or whatever? And I reach down to try to pick it up, it snaps at me. Now, rat snakes are not aggressive, but they are very, very defensive. And their teeth curve backwards, they're constrictors, their teeth curve backwards. So if you ever get bitten by one, avoid the urge to kind of pull your finger out, because that only lodge it in. You gotta kind of push it into their jaw and then slide it out that way, because their teeth curve backwards. But anyway, I pick this snake up, and he, he, he lets, uh, it turns out to be a she actually, she lets me pick her up and I'm thinking, why is this snake in the middle of the road? Uh, still snapping at me, uh, but it didn't want to get out of the road. So I'm going to take this, this snake home and inspect it and see if I can put it in a, in a safer place. we got this big ditch behind our house. And so I'm driving Diane's van. Now here's the thing you got to understand. If you ever see me in Diane's van, it's because I stole it. She doesn't let me drive her van ever, ever. But I'm driving her van, and I put the snake in the floorboard down near my feet so I can kind of keep the snake there around my feet. It starts trying to crawl up the floorboard in behind the dash, behind the dash. Now, 
sometimes people will find snakes coming out their air vent because snakes will lodge themselves in dashboards and then kind of poke out eventually. So this snake, about five feet long, starts crawling up the floorboard inside the back of the dash. I'm thinking, oh my goodness gracious. So I'm, I'm pulling on, I'm driving and I'm reaching down, I'm pulling on the snake's tail like this as I'm driving and, and I'm pulling down on the snake's tail trying to keep the snake from getting away from me. Well, I get home and I, I held on to the snake and I, and I pulled him out of the dash I get her out, and I'm, I'm checking the snake out. Well, if you look at the picture here, in the back, you can see my wife. In the very back, she's like, but she's like this to the side. I'm out here. I'm where Todd is, and she is right here. She will not even look at me. And I'm telling you, y'all, it was wrath to the uttermost. Or like the old Presbyterian preachers, it was wrath to the uttermost. It was, she was saying things at the wall that I cannot repeat in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. She was basically saying, I'm about to UPS you to Alaska. She was so angry she wouldn't even look at me. And she was just, it was like a decree of separation happening right there as I was holding on to this snake. And I remember thinking to myself, if, I, if this snake gets away from me and winds up in her dashboard, I'm not going to say a word. I, I'm not going to say anything about it. And when that snake comes out sometime and she calls me screaming, I'm just going to say, I've heard those things can happen. I've, I've heard... People of God had forgotten. They had failed to remember. God had become a trifling thing to them. They crafted an idol. They had given everything precious they had, all of their gold, to, to help make this poor golden calf become something it nor they could be for themselves. Calvin, in his commentary on Acts chapter 2, or in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, book 1, chapter 2, section 8, says that you and I are idolorum fabricum, Said that all the way back. He lived from 1509 to 64. He knew it then. It's true of us now. We're, we are idol factories. Idolorum fabricam. We, are, we forge idols in our hearts and, and we bow down to those things. We don't just fail to remember. When we fail to remember God, we run to relinquish ourselves to our idols. More stuff, more sex with whomever, whenever, however, wherever I want it. More likes on socials, more approval sucking, more image management. Our idols cannot protect us. They cannot provide for us. They cannot propitiate for us. They cannot give us purpose. They can only poison us. And that's why that's why the children of Israel eventually in Numbers 21 verses 4 to 9 are bitten by venomous Venomous snakes because of their rebellious forgetfulness of the Lord's faithfulness. They were bitten by these venomous snakes, and the Lord told Moses, tell them to fashion a bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole, not as an idol to be worshipped, but a reminder, a, a symbol of their sin and rebellion, the judgment they deserved, the very thing that was poisoning them and killing them, and have them look at that, and they will be spared. God gives frequent reminders all the time in the midst of our forgetfulness. Frequent reminders when we fail to remember. David Wells, uh, in his book back in the 90s, God in the Wasteland, speaks of the weightlessness of God. And by the weightlessness of God, he's not referring to God as spirit, though God certainly is spirit. John 4, 24, uh, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He's not talking about the nature of God as a spiritual being. When he speaks of the weightlessness of God, he says, and I quote, God rests all too inconsequentially on you and me. He's not a weighty matter to us. 
Yet in Isaiah 6, 1 to 5, in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Smoke filled the sanctuary. The doorpost shook. The seraphim with six wings, two they fly. Two they cover their face, two they cover their feet. They cry out, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his what? His glory, his kavod in the Hebrew. The word means weightiness. The whole earth is filled with the weight of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we read that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The word doxa in the Greek is the word for glory. So when you consider the Hebrew and the Greek, glory, the glory of God is the, is the weighty, radiant brightness of his character. And they had forgotten it. And yet God gives a faithful reminder. Moses comes down from the mountain, as Jan read earlier, and his face shone. His face was shining. The Hebrew word for shone, for shining, is the word kirin. It can also be translated horn. I think, what? Wait, what? Yes, it's actually the same word that is used in Exodus 27, verse 2, to speak of the horns of the altar, where we lay hold of those horns and cry out for mercy. Moses comes down with his face, as it were, horned. His face was horning. He was shining like rays or beams or horns of light coming out from his from his face, like rays of light coming out from his face. That's what the word means. It's like horns of light or beams of, of light. Now, Michelangelo sculpted Moses. If you ever go to Rome, you can see it. Sculpted it between 1515 and 16. And let me ask you, when you look at this sculpture and you see Moses' face in his head, is there anything about Michelangelo's Moses that seems unique? a little bit strange. Do you see anything there on Moses? What do you see? Right, you see horns. Why did Michelangelo sculpt Moses with horns? Because he was following the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of this Hebrew text. And in the Latin Vulgate here of Exodus 34, it says, Moses came down his face with horns. His face was horning. In other words, Moses comes down with horns of glory coming out because he, not that golden calf with its prominent horns, he, Moses, was God's appointed mediator to lead them to the gospel reality that the horns of the altar held forth, that mercy was there to be found with Yahweh, not some cow statue. God was affirming his mediator, the horns of the altar, the glory of his mercy, They would cling to him and his grace. What are you clinging to? What am I clinging to? What am I clicking on lately? Right, we we click on porn and we say, give me satisfaction, give me meaning, give me purpose. Heal my boredom, heal my anger. Possessions, power, position, prestige, how many likes we get on socials. Tell me who I am. Tell me I matter. We conform to what captivates us. We we imitate that with which we are intimate. We become that which we 
behold, girls on socials learn what boys want to see. Boys press like and they perpetuate the pretentious plague. Instagram becomes our instructor. TikTok our teacher. Culture begins to catechize us. But the people of Israel, their poor eyes had seen a man who had been in the presence of God. They knew where he had been and it terrified them and they could not handle the truth. So Moses had to veil his face with glory beaming like horns, glory beaming out from his face. God reminded them of his covenant faithfulness, his desire to dwell with them in intimacy and in temple fellowship. They had forgotten, but he reminded them of his desire for them, never to leave or or forsake them. Back in 1994, I did missions work in the former Yugoslavia during the Civil War. I saw things there that I can never unsee. I saw unspeakable horrors there. I visited uh, a Baptist pastor and his wife, Georgitsu, in their little uh, apartment above their makeshift church down below. And he tells me the story of the night that six Serbian soldiers break into their house and they tie him up and force him to witness the mistreatment of his wife and his daughter. And then he raises his shirt and he shows me his back. And there's the scar tissue all over his back where they, for fun, for entertainment, took their bayonets and just carved up his back. It was like a roadmap to a land where God had been forgotten. I walked through village after village that was just bombed out and rubble everywhere. I remember going with a little group of believers to their makeshift church and on the walls of the makeshift church in this land where God had been forgotten were the following words. Ad gavori mu yisus, yasim put yistina izivot, nikto di daladzi aku osim pomini in Croatian. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. They reminded me that they had a faithful redeemer who had never left or forsaken them. We fail to remember, he frequently reminds us what we forget, that we have what? A faithful redeemer. The one who shines in Exodus 34 is not ultimately Moses. The one who shines in Exodus 34 is the true and greater Moses. Moses is shining to point the way to the true and greater Moses. The one who shines is Jesus. God affirms the authority of Moses and his shining face horning out or protruding out with glory as the mediator of the old administration of the one covenant of grace. But when we turn to the New Testament, places like Matthew 17, 1 to 13, or Mark chapter 9, 2 to 13, or Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36, we see Jesus take Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, and he is transfigured before them, pulls back his flesh, as it were, and they see his pre-incarnate glory. Luke said his clothes became dazzling white. And then a glory cloud overshadowed them. And God said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Peter said, we're not leaving this place. He wanted to build tents. He wanted to build tabernacles. Why did he want to build tabernacles? Because he knew that's what you do when God is present in his glory. They did not want to leave. They wanted to be there with the Lord Jesus. Imagine it. Shouldn't be that far of a stretch for you. Those with eyes to see know that we are in the presence of the true and greater Moses right now. We are in the presence of the true and greater Moses, Jesus Christ, every single Sunday. Look with me, 
if you will, in your scriptures, the New Testament, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As you're turning, I would suggest to you that 2 Corinthians 1 through 7 is some of the most lyrical passages in the entirety of the Bible. Some of the most beautiful things you'll ever read in scripture are in First or in Second Second Corinthians, verse uh, chapters one through seven. Back up to verse twelve. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The last year we've been wearing masks out of an abundance of caution. Even today, some still are not comfortable uh, going certain places without their masks. But e- even if you aren't wearing a paper or a, or a cloth mask right now, we wear masks of all kinds. Maybe it began when we were kids, when the fear and the shame set in. What if someone sees me for who I really am? They'll counsel me. They'll cancel me. They'll, they'll reject me. And no one ever sees me anyway. Anybody here this morning feel like you just haven't been seen by anyone in a long time. No one ever sees me anyway. Might as well control what they do see if they look. Besides, I'm not all that, I'm not that big on becoming a colossal embarrassment to myself, so I'm just going to mask up and hide. Look, look back at the text here, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, beloved, do you see Jesus for who he is? Because he sees you for who you are and who he has promised to make you to be. What he has covenanted in his grace to make of you. Jesus, your elder brother, the greater Moses, sees you. And according to Hebrews chapter 2, He's not ashamed of what he sees. He's not ashamed to call you his little sister and his little brother. Hebrews 2, he came to destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of us who through our fear of death were held in lifelong slavery. Understand this, because of the reality of the historic resurrection of Christ, for every Christian, death has been trembling ever since it failed to hold on to Jesus. The grave gave up and gave him up. And for you, death trembles Death trembles at the thought of trying to keep hold of you because one went to the cross 
for the joy set before him. You were the joy set before Jesus as he went to the cross. And he rose in power and now his face shines upon you. He lifts his countenance upon you, number 624 to 26, and gives you peace. He can do that because we know where he has been he has been in the presence of God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. The Greek there is prostantheon. It literally means before the face of God. Jesus was in the very presence of God, and he came to do for you and me what we never could have done for ourselves. He has been in the presence of God. He is very God, a very God, and we behold him now, and he says, come, be intimate with me. He has opened the way. The veil, Matthew 27, 51, of the temple was torn in two. And now we are told to come into the presence of God. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, let us hold unswerving to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is at all points tempted, even as are we. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The very God whose wrath consumed Jesus to the uttermost as he was lifted up on that cross, as he said he would be in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. John 3, 14, there he was upon the cross, my poisonous sin, my rebellion, the judgment that I deserve. There he was with a sign above him that should have said, reserved for David Filson. And it was replaced, as it were, with a sign that read, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum, so that the Latin readers would understand. The sign said, Jesu Ho Nazareus Ho Basileus Ton Judeon, so that those who spoke Greek could see who was there. And finally, Yeshua. Yeshua Ho Nazare Vamelech Heyudim. Jesus Christ. King of the Jews. And now for all to see, the horns of glorious light shine forth from the face of this king whose warm hands are on a quest to lay hold of you. The hands of a king, as Tolkien says in Return of the King, are what kind of hands? They are healing hands. The glory shines forth, not to consume us, but to conform us more and more into his image. Let Jesus be your image consultant. Let it be said of you, I know where you've been. You've been with Jesus. Will, I know where you've been. You've been with Jesus. Gif, I know where you've been. I can see it. It's all over your face. You've been with Jesus. Maria, I know where you've been. You've been with Jesus. Tony, you've been with Jesus, haven't you? Charlene, I know where you've been. We all know where you've been, girl. You've been with Jesus because you love him so much. I know where you've been. You've been with Jesus, and he's rubbing off on you. It's all over your face. He's making you more and more like himself. So take off your masks. No need to veil your face. The veil has been torn in two. Then why veil your face? Where have you been lately? Have you been in the presence of any golden calves? Is your face showing the weariness of your addictions, your lust, your anger, years of running? Do you look numb, checked out because you've peaced out on Jesus lately? Whatever trash cans you've been digging around in, take off your cone of shame. Let me ask you, do you want to come fresh 
to Jesus this morning. He said, David, I've been unfaithful lately. Um, I've held on to the horns of altars of my own making. I've been unfaithful. I bet you have. So have I. But he hasn't. Jesus, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful to us. Do you want to come afresh to Jesus? You say, Pastor, there are poisonous vipers in the dashboard of my life. I don't want anyone to know about, and I'm just hoping they'll never come out and be seen. I just lie and make excuses and hope no one ever finds out. Let me ask you, do you want to experience the very presence of God? Do you want to get in on temple intimacy with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? If so, look at yourselves. Look at what you are becoming more like Jesus because of his faithfulness to you. We are conformed to the one who captivates us. We imitate the one with whom we are intimate. We become like the one we behold. That's why John says, the aged apostle in 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And what we shall be has not yet been revealed, but we know this. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. Jesus was raised for you and from me so that we could be face to face with him unashamed. He was raised the son of God in power, Romans 1, 1 to 4. Power over death and the grave. So let me ask you, why not shed the grave clothes of your idolatry and your shame and your fear and your fakery? Intimacy with Jesus is insurrection against the reign of terror that Satan has accused us and deceived us into fearing. Imitation of Jesus is fueled by intimacy with Jesus. We imitate him as we with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed, sanctified, made more like Jesus from one degree of glory to another. Jesus shines and he rubs off on us. This week, my wife and I had the, the privilege of taking our dear Helen Cummings, a longtime member of Christ Prez, out for lunch. And we, we got, we're having lunch with her. We love her so much. And she was talking just about the last uh, you know, a couple of years and, and uh, just the suffering and pain that she's walked through as, as her husband was sick and, and as he, he passed away. And she talks about how every morning she gets up and spends a couple of hours with the Lord and how much Psalm 84 means to her. Uh, Psalm 84 verses 6 and 7 it speaks of, of walking through the, the valley of Baca, which ought to be a dry, barren valley. Yet because of the presence of the Lord, there are springs of water and believers move from strength to strength. Even as we suffer, yes, especially as we suffer, we move from strength to strength. And yet we hide and we veil ourselves out of fear. You know, anytime that I ask people, they like to read C.S. Lewis, Everybody says yes, even if all they mean by that is they once watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when it first came out, you know, but oh yeah, I've read Lewis. Anyway, when someone says that their favorite book is Till We Have Faces, I know that they are listening to deep Lewisian tracks at that point. And you, you know, until we have faces, um, Oruol decides to wear a veil. I mean, the whole book is about spiritual conversion, dying before we die, dying to ourselves, right? And she, she, she decides to wear a veil for the rest of her life to hide her ugliness and pain after the loss of psyche. And as she wears that, that veil, she just becomes less and less human. Let me ask you, do, do you feel that way? 
just less and less human. The promise of the gospel is you're truly human now. You're not fully human yet. What he has promised, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor is it entered the imagination of the hearts of man, the things the Lord has in store for those who love him. What he's going to make of you is an incredible thing. As Lewis says, we would be tempted to all but fall down and worship each other if we saw what the Lord was making of us. Are you thirsty this morning? That rock, the presence of God, Back in Exodus 17 where Moses finds God present with his people and God says, I will be with you on the rock. Go strike the rock with the rod of judgment and healing water will flow. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that that rock was Christ. Christ was struck for us and healing water slakes our thirst and heals us. Wrath is turned away because it was poured out upon Christ and consumed him. Healing water flowed. And that's why we hear Isaiah say in chapter 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat that which is good. Hear and your soul will live. And we have here a frequent reminder every Lord's Day. A frequent reminder. Let me ask you, what is more intimate than eating and drinking? You take something that is outside of you and you put it inside of you. You know, in just a few minutes, I'm going to say, run, don't walk. I may even have you all do it with me. But as you come to the table, lay aside your masks, come as you are. His warm hand is on a quest for you. And know that you're not just walking down the aisle here when your row is dismissed. You are running a celestial road where heaven touches earth. And what we do in this sanctuary, according to Hebrews chapter 12, is played out in the heavenly temple as we are surrounded by myriad upon myriad of angels and the heavenly host and the saints all arrayed in festal gathering. And they are ready to celebrate and cheer you on and say, let the real worship party begin. Gracious Father, we come. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your warm hand is on a quest to lay hold of us. Lay hold of us now as only you can. We would ask, Lord, in the strong name of Jesus, that you would help us to believe the gospel afresh. As we come to this table, we come, Lord Jesus, to you, and we cling to you for your glorious mercy and grace, and we offer ourselves to you in your precious name, our true and greater Moses. Amen.